very welcome here. I'm Eric Berghoff. I'm the director of the Institute of Global Affairs. And um, my role here is here really just to, to um, get uh, a conversation uh, with uh, Governor Rajan. But I first wanted to give the opportunity to the High Commissioner of um, India to say a few words and, and um, introduce our new joint venture on uh, the 100 Feet Journey Club. Maybe, Mr. High Commissioner, please. Uh, good morning, and uh, welcome to this inaugural session of the 100-Foot Journey Club. Uh, it's a great pleasure uh, to be part of this venture, which happened quite providentially about a month ago when I had my first visit to the LSC, and uh, it took me exactly about uh, 50 seconds to walk across uh, the road and, and come here. And it was, I had seen a few months ago this movie called The Hundred Foot Journey, uh, which, which crosses this huge divide between Indian cuisine and French cuisine and ends in a love marriage. Uh, I don't know where this is going to end, <laughs> but it has begun. Uh, we, while we were here, we thought that we're just 100 feet away, so why don't we start a club? I'm so grateful to the LSE and the South Asia Center that they, they took the idea in the spirit that it was put forward. And uh, since then, they have given it a concept, a shape, uh, and a future with several high-profile uh, talks uh, being, being lined up. The idea was essentially that we are all doing our work. A lot of work is being done in LSE. Uh, a different kind of work is being done in the High Commission. Uh, but there was clearly a, a possibility of using this club as a force multiplier for work on both sides, something which would enable the work that is being done uh, to reach a higher public platform, and more importantly, uh, to break out of our silos, because here, uh, I mean, there is a, this would be a club, a platform, where academic research meets actual public policy and, and uh, government work. So that's what we do, and academic work is what is done here, but I saw from the interaction that I had that it was not pure academic work. This was academic work based in the realities, certainly of India, and how India could engage the world. So this is a large sort of canvas. It's, it's free for us to paint it the way we want. And I think Providence has been really kind to this club, not simply by its name, but by the fact that we have such uh, an important... Uh, personality, such an eminently qualified personality as Dr. Aguram Rajan, uh, to, to launch it. It was by providence that uh, I ran into him in Mumbai last month at the reception uh, for the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, and I learned of his upcoming uh, visit here. And I think that also gave us time on both sides to, uh, to sort of uh, plan this event. If we are talking of... Uh, uh, practical uh, approach to academics and its absorption into governance. Again, there can be no better person. 
because uh, Dr. Raghuram Rajan is as erudite a scholar and as he is a pragmatic practitioner. Uh, so I think this is uh, a great launch for the club. I'd, lo- I'd like to thank all of you, in particular, put- particularly the LSC and the South Asia Center. And I'd like to thank Dr. Raghuram Rajan for making this inaugural address. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. High Commissioner. Yeah, so, so as I said, uh, I'm head of the Institute of Global Affairs, and the, um, one of the, or we are here really to uh, mobilize LSE faculty and, and, and students on important uh, global issues. And one of the, the main initiatives that we are pursuing is uh, rethinking global finance, rethinking the global financial architecture. So we know that there, after the global financial crisis, there, there was a, a major wave of new regulation. There were challenges to, to the global financial institutions. This wave of new rules and new regulation was very much driven by the advanced economies. And some of these rules, some of these regulations had... Uh, negative impact in, in emerging economies, sometimes preventing financial markets from, from really flourishing. But uh, there was also very uh, innovative and, and uh, uh, new responses to, uh, to uh, monetary policy. We know quantitative easing, the expansion of central bank balance sheets and so on. And that had also had implications for uh, emerging and developing economies. It wreaked havoc in capital flows. It, it uh, affected uh, uh, currency uh, exchange rates. Again, uh, affecting uh, emerging and developing economies. And what, what has not been the case, until now at least, has been uh, the, that these emerging and developing economies have had a real voice in, in the formation of this regulation and in, in uh, affecting the design of these international institutions. And now when the Chinese are chairing the G20, they have had tried to raise uh, uh, these issues and, and push uh, the thinking around the global financial architecture up the agenda of the G20. But this is a very difficult uh, to, to do, and, but luckily there is a voice uh, for these countries, and, and Governor Rajan has very much been this voice, uh, combining his academic uh, background with, with his uh, policy experience. Uh, I'm probably not revealing any secrets, but we go back quite some time, and uh, I remember we were students together in, in the U.S., and, and um, already at that time I knew that Governor Rajan would um, go back and serve his country. He, it took him 20 years to, to, to go back, but uh, he, he, um, I think he, has, he was waiting for the right opportunity, and I think uh, what, what he has achieved since he went back is, is, uh, is quite, quite uh, remarkable. Uh, in between, uh, during those 20 years, he also spent three years as the 
chief economist and head of the research department at, at the IMF, which I think gives you an insight into um, how these institutions work and how the global monetary system uh, works, which uh, uh, Governor Radian will, will talk about. But I think what is, what is really, uh, I think, unique is, is exactly this combination of, of uh, his academic background, his academic work at, as a, a professor at the University of Chicago at the Booth School of Business. And he's worked extensively on, on um, uh, thinking through uh, in a couple of books, one book on, on, uh, the, um, uh, on how to save capitalists from the capitalist, how to uh, find ways of constraining oligarchs, for example, which is an issue in, in, in many emerging economies, how to, to make capitalists work better and work for, for those who, who really need uh, finance and uh, who, who don't have access. And then in a, in a book which was uh, perhaps even more influential, where he looked at uh, what are the political forces behind uh, what happened in the global financial crisis? What, what were the uh, drivers of these uh, push to provide finance to, to, uh, to people who could not maybe afford it? And I think this came also from uh, his experience in, in India, that uh, you know, financial access is something that we really want to promote, but it also has uh, aspects for, for or uh, impact for, um, for the stability of the financial system. And, and so we are very much looking forward, uh, Governor Radian, to, to your uh, presentation. We will then have uh, questions from the audience, and, and um, we will enjoy. And I think many people are listening to you, and people will be listening to you here uh, t- uh, this morning as well. Governor Radian, please. Excellency, the High Commissioner of India to the United Kingdom, uh, Mr. Sarna, um, Eric Bergloff, Director, LSE Institute of Global Affairs, distinguished guests, including all the students here. Um, Thanks for having me this morning. And uh, what I'd like to talk about uh, a little is uh, where we are in the uh, global uh, outlook at this point, and why this suggests that we need something better to take care of uh, the global monetary slash financial system than we have today. In fact, today we don't really have much of a system. Uh, we need something in place, and uh, what I want to do is talk about some of the forces at play today and, and why this, uh, this creates need for such a system. I think it's fair to say that uh, uh, the recovery has been long-awaited post-financial crisis and is yet to be seen as strong and sustained. Um, We have uh, a multi-speed outlook uh, across the globe. Um, Within industrial countries, we have differences in growth rates, some of which are tied to which countries deleveraged early and, uh, and dealt with some of the uh, debt issues uh, up front. Uh, perhaps the United States might fall in, in that category, and those which postponed uh, or have yet to uh, deleverage fully, uh, and perhaps some countries in Europe might fall there. 
within emerging markets and developing countries, again, we have uh, differential rates of growth. Uh, most recently, commodity producers uh, uh, seem to be adversely affected, many in Latin America uh, and some in Africa, uh, while commodity consumers seem to be better off. But even before that, we had those who spent uh, very heavily post-crisis suddenly coming up against the constraints of, uh, of that kind of spending. Uh, result, that kind of spending resulted in high leverage, uh, and, and uh, uh, countries like Brazil uh, and, to some extent, China have slowed down as a result of that post-crisis spending. Um, and between industrial countries and emerging markets, uh, again, there is a differential pace of, uh, of growth. Um, in, in some sense, you know, paraphrasing Tolstoy, uh, happy countries, uh, um, you know, are all alike. They all seem to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, they don't seem to have some of these problems. But unhappy countries, each unhappy country is unhappy in its own way. We can find a problem per country. Uh, and explain why that country is do it, not doing so well. But I think there are some common forces. Uh, I think uh, the world is much more integrated than we thought. Uh, remember, post-financial crisis, there was some talk of decoupling the emerging markets running away from the industrial countries with strong growth. And then we found that the emerging markets suddenly were jerked back uh, because they were linked to the same sort of common global forces. So, so while I think you can find an explanation per country, there are some common global forces at work, and we need to understand what they are. Uh, and, and I have to say the state of thinking here is still uh, developing. We still don't have clear answers, but there do seem to be um, some forces that we can point to. So let me talk about what these forces might be. Why is it that broadly across the world uh, we have headwinds to growth? Um, uh, the, the most obvious is the effects of debt, that uh, perhaps sustainable global growth even before the great financial crisis was, uh, was less than what uh, um, you know, uh, both the pol political establishment as well as people desired, and growth was pumped up across the world through leverage that people borrowed to spend, whether at the household level or at the government level uh, or even at the corporate level. And uh, post-financial crisis, and this is what I started with, uh, a number of uh, uh, countries have been held back by the subsequent uh, deleveraging. And even if the emerging markets didn't do much of this uh, pre-financial crisis, you could explain their slowdown as post-financial crisis, they find that their sources of demand, they were exporting uh, uh, for growth, and the countries that were buying their stuff now are held back by the deleveraging. So the emerging markets have to find their own domestic sources of growth. Many find it in the same sort of answer that industrial countries found, which is let people borrow and spend or let governments borrow and spend or let, let local governments borrow and spend. And that growth also has come to an end. So we're all in the process of deleveraging. So that is one explanation. I think... Uh, which uh, probably the biggest proponents are uh, Reinhard Rogoff uh, uh, with their wonderful book, This Time is Different, as well as subsequent ar articles. But, but since then, uh, people have also asked the question, uh, well, if in fact the world was growing so slowly before the great financial crisis, why was that? What were the deeper forces that, was, that were creating this 
relatively slow growth, uh, what, what changed in, in the world? And you can go back and there are uh, a whole bunch of explanations, but I think two are, are, uh, 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 have become quite prominent. Uh, one is that uh, a number of industrial countries are experiencing population aging, and the most recent, uh, the, the, the most uh, obvious is Japan, uh, but also you see a number of countries in Europe aging, and uh, there is, um, of course, the second largest economy in the world, China, uh, which may be aging before it has gotten to the levels of income that industrial countries have got, too. So um, we don't fully understand what the consequences of population aging are on savings and investment. Uh, is savings, are, are savings likely to pick up as populations near retirement age? Uh, when do savings get run down? What about investment? If I know my population is aging, should I sort of curb uh, investment because there's not much domestic demand uh, growth likely in the future? These are questions we, we don't have good, good answers to. We don't even know how to measure GDP in the face of, uh, of population aging. At least uh, we don't know how to uh, communicate it in a reasonable way. David Pilling of the Financial Times had an article sometime back saying, well, with Japan, uh, Japan's labor force shrinking uh, at 1% to 2% a year, perhaps the right metric for Japan in terms of calling a recession would be if growth falls below negative 2 because labor force is shrinking, GDP out, uh, will, will naturally shrink also, uh, even uh, if things are, are reasonable. Uh, but yet we keep calling a Japanese recession any time growth falls below zero. So that's an example of how we haven't even adjusted the GDP numbers to think about population aging and the consequences for the workforce. Uh, but, but broadly, we really don't understand what this does to aggregate demand, and the biggest problem in the world today is, of course, aggregate demand across the globe is, is weak. Um, a second factor which may play into this, maybe, maybe, maybe different, is productivity has slowed down, uh, productivity growth. And, and this is uh, you know, hard to understand for the lay public because you're surrounded by so many uh, descriptions of innovation, of, uh, of people doing things better, do, people th doing things in a more clever way, and uh, so we're surrounded by innovation, we're surrounded by potential productivity improvements, but doesn't show up in the numbers, right? Uh, and and why, is that, why is that so? Why aren't we seeing the effects of stronger productivity growth in the numbers? There are at least four ec explanations, and very quickly, uh, one is the measurement problem. That uh, perhaps uh, what is happening is the goods we're seeing today are better than the goods uh, we bought yesterday. A car today is much, much uh, better than the car we bought 10, 15 years ago. It's packed with a whole lot of new gadgets, is safer, got airbags, got, uh, you know, it may still uh, drive you at 55, 60 miles per hour, but, uh, but there's a lot more to the car than it, there was earlier. So uh, essentially, it's hard to measure quality. And because we are under measuring quality, uh, the car today may be 1.2 times the car yesterday, but it still counts as one extra car. And in that sense, uh, when we measure productivity, we are under-measuring productivity growth. Or put differently, 
the people who, who propose this would suggest that we are over measuring inflation. Inflation is too high relative to the real inflation because we're getting more bang for the buck today when we buy some of these products. And therefore, GDP, uh, nominal GDP, deflated by an overly high inflation rate results in a overly low real GDP. And so the argument is we are undermeasuring growth. We are undermeasuring growth because we are undermeasuring quality. Okay? Now, th there's some, some possible truth to this. How much it accounts for uh, the undermeasurement uh, is, uh, is hard to say, but, uh, but people are working on this. Marty Feldstein from the U.S. is, is, a, is a big proponent of this. A second possibility is the monetization problem, right? And um, some of you uh, students uh, 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 may, may understand that GDP uh, doesn't me measure every good and service that's produced in the economy. It just measures those that are monetized, right? And that's a problem with GDP. It's a problem that we've known about since, uh, since its uh, concept of GDP was first, first uh, m uh, mooted. And, and anybody I don't pay, their work doesn't count for GDP. As soon as I start paying them, their work does count. And uh, the, the famous example is in Paul Samuelson. Uh, uh, if, uh, if a wealthy lady marries her chauffeur, GDP goes down. Okay? So that's the, that was the, uh, the concept. But it shows up today in a different form. Uh, earlier, you used to go to the theater to see movies and uh, used to pay for entrance, uh, and uh, there'd be a clerk uh, working to sell tickets. There used to be ushers, this, that. Today, you watch that same movie or something better, some short uh, episode on YouTube, and you don't pay anything for it. So GDP has gone down because now you watch YouTube, but your sense of satisfaction may have gone up, right? Because now you have much more flexibility and freedom. So the monetization problem would say, we still have to figure out how to monetize all this. When we do figure out, uh, it will start showing up in GDP. But for the moment, people are as happy as before, except we don't measure their happiness uh, because it doesn't uh, show up. A third problem, and this is more uh, sh uh, um, sort of specific to the crisis and the response, is that it may be that we haven't put firms out of their misery. What do I mean by that? Uh, good crises tend to clean up uh, uh, industry. Uh, only the more productive firms survive. Um, while uh, if, on the other hand, you intervene a lot in a crisis and uh, uh, flood the system with liquidity, etc., yes, there is some uh, uh, liquidation that happens, but less than in an ordinary crisis. And as a result, you may have inefficient firms producing uh, simply because uh, the cost of capital is really low, they're not, they're not charged the right cost of capital, uh, they populate industry, industry is inefficient, but um, you, know, uh, you haven't had the right... Uh... So that's the zombie problem, was there in a big way in Japan post-financial, uh, uh, post post-their financial crisis in the, in the 1990s, uh, firms that were neither dead nor alive. Uh, what we mean by that is they're on their last legs, but they haven't been put out of their misery. So they, they're essentially uh, uh, still alive, uh, uh, producing inefficiently, and in a, in a sense eroding 
the, uh, the profitability and the viability of existing firms in industry. How much of that I- exists in industrial countries post great financial crisis is, is again an open issue. And the last uh, issue, which uh, I think the Economist has been raising in recent, uh, in recent uh, uh, issues, is, is basically that maybe the structure of industry has also changed. Uh, that we have got, because of network effects, because of patent rights, uh, because of intellectual property protection, we've got a lot more oligopolistic in industries. And oligopolistic industries, as we've seen in Mexico, for example, tend to um, overcharge, uh, get inefficient, and underproduce. Uh, and that could account for a productivity slowdown if this is uh, a, a global problem. Regardless of how important these, these, these problems are, it doesn't seem that our global response targets these specific problems. Uh, instead, we're still uh, broadly in a situation where we think the problems are largely temporary, that uh, with sufficient stimulus, we will get the global economy back on track. And uh, the mantra that, uh, that the IMF has been putting out since the global financial crisis is broadly uh, what the G20 also has espoused and other international as, uh, bodies have espoused. As far as monetary policy goes, press your foot firmly on the accelerator and keep it pressed. Um, whoever can do more fiscal stimulus, earlier it was everybody, but now uh, it's a little more nuanced that guys who don't have room should probably be a little more careful, but guys who have room should do all the fiscal stimulus that they can. And if you have the political room to do structural reforms, of course that would be the first best thing to do, but if you, uh, if you have the political room, go do your structural reforms. Now one gets the sense that these policy prescriptions would remain the same regardless of what the underlying problem was. That is, uh, do the stimulus and do what you can on structural reforms. And one has to ask the question, um, you know, can, can one do better? Is there something uh, um, that one could do uh, which, which would have a greater chance of, uh, of having effect? And, and, and this is where it's important to understand what the underlying causes are. And I'm going to give you three sort of uh, um, reform uh, approaches that would uh, depend on what the underlying cause is, okay? And I'm going to uh, give you a different take. One on, on the structural reforms, right? Um, you know, today, when we talk about structural reforms, it's each country on its own bottom. That every country is exhorted to do whatever structural reforms it can to get growth going uh, within the uh, political space available. And in fact, the G20 has put together, I think, around a thousand structural reforms that uh, the members have agreed to, which will move the needle uh, uh, by about two percentage points over the next five years in terms of growth. Now, there is a a very useful question to ask, which is, uh, is there a need for international coordination on these things? Won't countries at this time, when growth is really scarce, do everything they can within the political space available? Do they need exhortation by the international bodies to do A or B, or will they do it themselves? What What is the... uh, real added value from international discussion. But uh, I think a more relevant question would be, are there structural reforms that really could benefit from some coordination, from some international discussion, from some international cooperation? 
Now, one example of this, which has been very successful at the G20, is is on uh, tax uh, tax um, tax base erosion, tax uh, avoidance. Uh, trying to get the global community because that's where global cooperation can help. One country trying to crack down on tax avoidance would be problematic because companies would leave and go elsewhere. But if collectively the global globe cracks down, I think it could have effects. Of course, there's a lot of uh, uh, ways still to go on this, but that's an example where global cooperation would be would be very very useful. Question is, are there other areas? where reforms could pay off globally. And one example would be in our attitude towards oligopolistic industries because many of these straddle the globe. Uh, But instead of a common kind of discussion on what is necessary, we sometimes have individual fragmented discussions uh, which then perhaps are less less effective. So the euro, uh, the uh, EU moves against certain oligopolistic uh, industries um, emerging markets sometimes try and move against them uh, uh, and try to get a more level playing field, but it's not a coordinated effort, and, and the question is, is, is something like that uh, necessary? But um, moving away from those reforms to a set of reforms post-financial crisis, uh, which were needed, but now we have to ask, have we, have we run the course? And that is... Uh, reforms on bank regulation, right? Uh, clearly, post uh, pre-financial crisis, we had moved to the point where the banking system was probably underregulated, probably misusing uh, uh, various kinds of guarantees from the uh, from the governments. Uh, effectively, too big to fail guarantees, too complex to fail guarantees, as well as too many to fail. All of which played a part in the post-financial crisis intervention. So some regulation was needed. The question we have to ask is, uh, have we done enough? Have we done it in the right places? Are we uh, uh, significantly better off today? And what more uh, should we do? Have we reached the limits? Now, this is where I think the answer to ha- ha- are we better off than we were before is probably yes. We're better off today uh, in terms of protecting the system. But there are new risks that we may have created in the process. And we have to ask ourselves, uh, is the direction we're going, does that have, do we have to take a fresh look and see whether we're going in the right direction? Let me give you a few examples uh, more as questions that the international regulatory bodies are trying to grapple with today and uh, rather than uh, give you answers. So, for example, um, because of higher capital requirements, and, and clearly banks were over-leveraged before the financial crisis, we needed higher capital. But because of higher capital requirements across the board, banks have backed off from certain kinds of activities and, in fact, sometimes even been asked to leave certain kinds of activities. Uh, One activity, for example, is a combination of market making as well as prop trading, now proprietary trading. Uh, Banks sometimes play a very useful role in providing liquidity to certain markets. Uh, When, in fact, there's uh, a market plunge as uh, buyers get anxious on one side of the market and try and sell out, 
Uh, sometimes institutional players, and I'm not saying banks always do the right thing here, but I'm, I'm saying that sometimes they come in on the other side and prevent the market from getting too, uh, um, moving too much. So this is what is called liquidity provision. Institutional players do provide liquidity. And um, one question is, as banks have backed away from market making, as they've backed away from uh, uh, trading and liquidity provision, have we got uh, overly thin markets? Now, this question becomes important because I'll talk in a, in a second about the role of monetary policy in, in moving asset prices. If, in fact, one of the fundamental themes of monetary policy is to elevate asset prices so as to inspire more activity, then when those asset prices come back to fundamentals, there'll be significant market shifts. And if those market shifts are happening in very illiquid markets, those shifts could be significantly bigger. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, have we rendered the system a little more fragile with our capital requirements? The banks themselves are stronger, but the markets are weaker. And if you put the system together, perhaps it's not as strong as it could be. Second question, and, and these are issues that regulators are, are paying attention to, so I don't want to give the impression that, that we're not thinking about this, but I want to ask these questions. Um, we have a very regulated banking system and a much less regulated shadow financial system, but they're both connected. And there are flows between. So if, in fact, you regulate one side a lot, what happens is activity flows to the unregulated part. Now, not only does activity flow, but increasingly human capital flows. The smart guys basically say, look, I'm going to fill out 50 compliance forms here every day. Why don't I go across the street and work for that unregulated or likely regulated hedge fund where compliance forms are few and far between? Okay? So human capital is also moving. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is the system safer if the banking system is really well regulated but has lost some of the riskier activity to the unregulated system, and some of the smarter people have moved. Now, some people would argue it's a good thing if the smart people move from the banks. They were doing too much inside the banks. Uh, but I, I think it's an open question. Uh, if, uh, if you don't have your really smart people doing risk management, etc., cetera, is, is that uh, riskier? It's, it's, it's a question. Um, third question is, is obviously... In the same way as people are backing off from market making, uh, they're backing off from a variety of real risks. Banks today uh, backing off from SME lending. As an emerging market regulator, I can tell you the number of bank branches that foreign banks are opening in India have uh, slowed down tremendously uh, post-global financial crisis, and the kind of activity, the expansion in activity also has slowed down considerably. So... Uh, Emerging markets, small and medium enterprise financing, riskier activities, real activities, which would help global growth, which would help country growth, banks are backing away from. This has more of an effect, of course, in bank-based economies, less of an effect in economies which have market options, but it has an effect globally. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is the trade-off right? We've got a little more safety by increasing capital uh, requirements, but we've also increased the cost of capital to banks, we've increased the cost of doing riskier business, and they may have backed off from real uh, activity, which is necessary, 
uh, and without necessarily backing off from financial activity, which may be less necessary. And last question I'll pose in this vein is, we have a banking system which is taking less risk. We have a shadow financial system which is taking more risk. Uh, with monetary policy as it has been, uh, liquidity risk is something that a number of entities are taking on. Ultimately, central banks are supposed to be lenders of last resort to deal with the liquidity mismatches in the economy. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are the places central banks can lend to, that is the commercial banks, where the illiquidity risk is going to show up next? Or is it going to show up in the shadow financial system where the central bank is not linked at all? Again, by moving uh, activity across markets, uh, have we created the potential for more risk? The, the bottom line here I, uh, is not so much that we should not have regulated post-financial crisis, but we have to ask ourselves, is regulation now becoming uh, uh, a little more uh, at the level where we have to ask ourselves, is more good or is it actually bad? And we have to figure out how to do better regulation, uh, and that requires a, a, a lot of thinking. Again, uh, bodies like the FSB and Basel are take, uh, um, thinking about this. Third point, and, and this is my last uh, area that I want to talk about in terms of post-crisis responses, uh, monetary policy. Uh, Post-crisis, uh, it made a lot of sense to cut interest rates rapidly uh, uh, to the bone uh, and uh, to intervene in certain markets to repair them. QE1, for example, repairing mortgage markets was extremely valuable in the United States. But increasingly, as we've moved to QE2, QE3, and so on, and uh, as a number of central banks are adopting more and more uh, unconventional policies, including most recently negative uh, interest rates, the uh, question we have to ask ourselves is, is monetary policy doing as much good in the past? What are the unintended consequences of monetary policy at, set at these levels, and is it increasingly part of the problem rather than part of the solution? Now, let me give you three criticisms that have been made about monetary policy uh, most recently. One, of course, we've already talked about. Some people argue that uh, with the level of, uh, uh, with the cost of capital so low, we're not getting enough exit from industries. If we're not getting enough exit, there's no incentive to invest either. And therefore, investment is held back by the overhang of inefficient capital, which is uh, there in existing industries. And uh, I think uh, embedded in this is the idea that existing firms have relationships with banks. Existing firms are easier to have an easier time borrowing, so they stay in existence even if inefficient, while new firms, which find it harder to raise capital, are finding it harder to come in, especially when the terrain is already occupied and there's overproduction. Now, the um, sort of extreme example of this is uh, today uh, in, uh, in steel, where there certainly is a sense there's overcapacity across the world in steel, and uh, that overcapacity needs to be reduced. But so long as um, bankers are willing to finance this process, that overcapacity may not get reduced, and if the cost of capital is low, the cost of financing this continuously may not be uh, that high. 
Uh, second point is that a number of people have ra started raising the question, um, if I cut interest rates, the theory says that you should go out and spend, right? Because you say, why save? I'm getting peanuts for saving. Instead, let me go and enjoy that new iPod or that new car, right? That's the theory. Turns out that, you know, we don't seem to have been encouraging consumption through lower and lower interest rates. In fact, savings rates are pretty much where they were before crisis or even a little higher. So what's going on? And one possibility people argue for is that it could be that the, um, you know, beyond a certain point, if I cut interest rates, um, income effects outweigh substitution effects or, uh, you know, you, you, you've done this kind of thing. And, and essentially what happens is I say, I'm 50 years old. I need to save uh, twice what I have by the time I'm 60. Unfortunately, if I'm to do that at these low interest rates, I need to actually save more rather than save less. So I go out, uh, I, I stop going out, I cut back on dinners. So you cut interest rates, I cut consumption rather than I increase consumption. Okay? So the argument is that one can tell a story. Now, again, one has to verify that these stories are in fact right, but one can tell a story where at low interest rates, cutting interest rates further, especially for people who rely on fixed income investments, uh, doesn't actually enhance consumption. It enhances savings because in this case, uh, I find that my overall income is falling and, and therefore to preserve that income in order to meet my end of life retirement goals, I actually save more rather than save less. Um, one could also argue about uh, uh, the fact that uh, with all the spending that's going on with the enormous amounts of government debt, uh, we worry about the viability of government pensions and entitlements, uh, and knowing that we're not going to be recipient of Social Security when we grow old, again, the savings motive gets enhanced. So more activism by the government implies enhanced uh, savings. Now, this is sort of a, 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 a version of... Uh, um, Ricardian equivalence, uh, those of you who've done macro would, would, would see that, uh, but it's something that could be, uh, could be hitting us. And, and the third uh, reason why we might have more savings is many of these uh, unconventional monetary policies work on the basis that we elevate asset prices. We ele elevate asset prices, we uh, um, essentially create some kind of wealth effect, people feel wealthier and they go out and spend, but if, in fact, they think that this asset price is elevated unnaturally and will come back to earth, uh, essentially they may look through the current asset price increase, in fact, go back to, look, there's more volatility in asset markets, I'd better save more rather than save less. So there are, I'm not saying these are, these are uh, uh, you know, um, these are the explanation, but I think there are increasingly plausible explanations for why, in fact, uh, cutting interest rates further may not increase consumption demand. Uh, at, uh, at worst, it may be neutral. Uh, at best, it may be neutral. At worst, it may actually reduce consumption demand, certainly according to uh, some of these, uh, these arguments. But even if you don't think there are these negative effects uh, and that monetary policy actually has perverse effects today rather than positive effects, 
it certainly has adverse effects for other countries. And uh, uh, what we've seen over the uh, post-financial crisis is the necessary reduction in interest rates in industrial countries to deal with the problem initially did spur a tremendous outflow of capital to the emerging markets, which created fragilities in the emerging markets themselves, many of which are showing up today. So these spillover effects through capital flows and through currency depreciation have had effects on the emerging markets. Let me talk quickly about currency and then, and then come to my, uh, my, uh, my, my uh, scheme. Um, you know, uh, currency affects um, all monetary policy. When I cut interest rates, uh, typically in any economic theory, it means that my currency also depreciates. Uh, so a lot of people say, oh, what, you emerging markets talking about currency wars, this, that. I mean, this is a natural consequence of monetary policy. Yes, it is a natural consequence, but it's a natural consequence of ordinary monetary policy, where when I cut interest rates, the interest rate-sensitive sectors of the economy increase their demand. Um, Housing investment goes up, corporate investment goes up, consumer uh, final demand goes up. And so I have more domestic demand, which compensates for the fact that my uh, uh, exchange rate also depreciates, and as a result, I draw in... Uh, demand from other countries. I'm giving back to the rest of the world some of my domestic demand because as my consumers get cheaper loans, they go out and buy foreign cars, they buy stuff from other countries also. On net, a more accommodative monetary policy in my country is arguably in normal times a benefit for the globe. The problem, however, is when you are in this kind of situation we are in today, where domestic demand is impervious to interest rate uh, cuts for some of the reasons I talked about. Uh, You don't get a whole lot of uh, people going out and spending. You don't get corporate investment picking up. The primary effect of cutting interest rates may be on your currency. Essentially, I'm taking demand from the rest of the world by depreciating my currency with no give back through my own domestic demand. Now, this, to my mind, this uh, um, effect of demand switching without any compensating demand-creating effects is probably more pronounced today than when we had uh, ordinary circumstances. And uh, not only do we have this demand switching, but of course we have the capital outflows which have their own adverse effects on other countries. So uh, one of the uh, arguments that a number of us in emerging markets have been making is there are consequences for the rest of the world from the aggressive monetary policy if it does very little domestically but does some harm outside, be careful about how much you do. Have a thought for the rest of the world. Now, that runs immediately against a problem which is across the world, central bankers have what is called a domestic mandate. In the Federal Reserve's mandate, or in the ECB's mandate, or in my mandate, there is nothing that says, think about the rest of the world. (laughs) Nothing. There may be statements about growth, there may be statements about inflation, there may be statements about price financial stability, but nothing which says anything about the rest of the world. So the only way I take the rest of the world into account is by what is called spillback effects. If I do something which affects the rest of the world, which spills back to me, 
That's the only way I take things into account. But that doesn't account for the full effects. So in other words, if I do something in my country, low, let's say I've depreciated my currency so much that your industry gets destroyed. The only way I take that into account is your industry used to import some teacups from my country, doesn't do that anymore, that is the spillback effect. Small relative to the fact that the industry is actually producing steel or something else, and the destruction of that industry creates enormous job losses in your country, but the spillover is not taken into account, it's just a spillback. So the point here is that um, monetary policy doesn't have a mandate to think about the rest of the world across central banks. Not only that, I think today there is no limit to monetary policy because central banks have a domestic inflation mandate which has both a lower bound and an upper bound. Many countries are in danger of penetrating the lower bound and falling below it. And the press, Main Street, politicians continuously uh, um, talk to them about how they're failing in their duty by falling below the lower bound. Now, central banks could always throw up their hand and say, I've done everything I can. Now, anything more that I do would have adverse effects on our banks, on, on, uh, on the public, and perhaps uh, outside. Of course, they're not allowed to talk about the outside, but uh, domestically. Why don't they do that? I think they don't do that because there is still one option that they all have, which we don't talk about. And, and that is what sometimes is colloquially called the helicopter drop. Okay, what is the helicopter drop? It's basically fiscal financing of the uh, monetary financing of the deficit, but in simple terms, it is uh, the central bank takes a whole bunch of banknotes into a helicopter, goes up 100 feet above the ground, and then starts unloading it, uh, unloading the cash from the helicopter. Anybody who finds it says, "Wow, this is my lucky day," and goes out and spends it on a meal or on a car or something else, depending on how much they find. And that boosts consumption in the economy, but also boosts inflation because with, uh, with limited supply and, and higher demand, you're going to get inflation. So the helicopter drop is always put forward as the nuclear option. In, if you haven't gone to the helicopter drop, you haven't done enough as a central banker. <laughs> and so that's always waiting. And no wonder central bankers keep trying more and more innovative stuff because uh, so long as they don't do the helicopter drop, there's still, uh, still an option that they can try. You never hear a central banker saying, I've run out of options. There's always something else, right? The point, however, is it's not clear to me these various options even, even necessarily work. I mean, let's, let's talk through the helicopter drop. I throw money out of the window. Somebody getting this money and say, seeing the central bank governor throwing money out of the helicopter will say, is this guy crazy? Has, has the world gone nuts? I'd better save much of this because I'm not sure what will happen. If they're spending my hard-earned money throwing it out of the window, I'm obviously um, joking here. But, but the real point is, again, when it's, it's not absolutely clear that throwing the money out of the window or targeted checks to beneficiaries will actually both be politically feasible as well as economically produce the right result. My sense is, yes, if you send the checks to the poorest people in the country, obviously consumption will go up. But in which country is there political room to send large checks to the poorest people? 
In general, the checks will have to be sent broadly. If they're sent broadly, a large number of people will simply save them. And therefore, do you get additional consumption and inflation from that? I think we, we don't really uh, have, have a strong reason to believe yes. The broader point is that uh, monetary policy uh, really works through the public's expectations. Uh, the other sort of channels through the output gap, the Phillips curve, those seem to be weaker today than they used to be in the past. Public's expectations can be anything depending on the uh, circumstances. We know very little about expectation formation. And in these troubled times, you run the risk of creating exactly the opposite expectation to the one that, that you intend. And that is why I think we are at the point where across the world, more and more aggressive monetary policy pre produces less and less understood consequences. Instead of currencies moving the way you expect, they move in a perverse way. And I think we don't really understand why that happens, but I think it does suggest we're reaching the limits of what monetary policy can do. Bottom line, we don't know, what, uh, 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 we don't know whether we've reached the limits of monetary policy domestically. I personally would argue there's more and more evidence that we probably are near that limit. But I also would say that we do know that the adverse spillover effects of aggressive monetary policy have been there for some time and are there to measure across the world. The fact that policies in, in some industrial countries affects sentiment in my markets on a daily basis is something that was not intended by them, does get experienced by me, and is a fact of life. And we need to deal with this because it puts constraints on policy in, in my country. So uh, having said the, uh, the, the, um, the argument, let me very quickly in the next two minutes uh, wrap up and, and uh, give you what, what I think we could do. Uh, basically, we have to move away. And here I'm talking largely about monetary policy. We have to move away from a situation where anything goes. Uh, we have to implicitly bring the international responsibility into the mandates of, of, of industrial country central banks. Um, and, um, you know, um, I think the first thing we need to do is more, more analysis. What are the net spillover effects? Are they positive? Are they negative? And we need unbiased people in academic institutions doing this kind of study to measure what these net spillover effects are. And then we have to ask ourselves, given these net spillover effects, what kind of policies are allowed? Okay? And, and broadly, we want to say policies that have a net positive benefit for the global economy over time are probably policies we should allow. Policies that have a net negative effect for the global economy, global economy including your economy uh, over time, are pro policies that should be handled with tremendous care and sometimes even outright prohibited. Today, the only policy that is prohibited internationally is sustained unidirectional intervention in your exchange rate. That is the only policy that is prohibited. But anything else, jazz it up, call it monetary policy, intervene in whatever market you want, that's okay. There's no rule against it so long as it's going towards your domestic mandate. Okay? So we need to think about whether this, in fact, is the state of affairs we want. And I would argue that you could build a system with a fair amount of flexibility. If a country, for example, is in a deep recession for 15 years and wants to get out, and the only instrument it has is depreciating its exchange rate, 
But that depreciation will give it a significant jump start, which will then allow it to produce strong demand for the rest of the world over time. Should we allow that? My sense is yes, because the world is on net better off over a sustained period as a result of that. Um, so I would argue we need rules of the game uh, based on how policies play out in the short term versus long term, whether they have negative effects on the rest of the world or positive effects, whether they're clear or whether they're fuzzy. And, and here I would use a driving analogy that uh, in the same way as the WTO, we can ascribe colors to policies, policies that have a net positive effect for the country, as well as uh, zero to positive spillover effects for the rest of the world. Let's give it a green label. Can do it anytime you want. Policies that are a little more uncertain or short-term negative but long-term positive may be more of an orange label. And policies that may be positive for your country but certainly negative for the rest of the world now and forevermore, let's give it a red label and say that countries should shun those kinds of policies. Okay? So uh, now, of course, we're nowhere near establishing what these policies might be uh, and what colors, etc. We need a lot more work. Uh, we need studies. Uh, what policies have been beneficial? What policies have been harmful? Once we have a reasonable number of studies, we then move to international discussion. And in those discussions, countries that follow particular policies which look more reddish or orangish uh, explain why, in fact, they believe those policies are on net beneficial for the world. And eventually, we, we move to a conference where we talk about rules of the game and international responsibilities. And when we've got to that kind of, uh, of situation, we are not far then from enacting some kind of a global uh, structure where countries would be required to at least incorporate some element of the world into their domestic mandates for central banks. Now, in all this, I'm not talking about coordination. I'm not talking about cooperation. I'm talking about rules of the game on responsibility, that we need some element of international responsibility in the setting of monetary policy. And it can't be, yes, I have international responsibility because I, I take into account the spillback effects of my policies on the rest of the world. That is too small an effect relative to the effects that should be taken into account for the rest of the world. So that sort of is what, uh, where uh, I've been going. Uh, it's, uh, you know, um, uh, first reaction to any such thing is, yes, this is a guy from an emerging market which has no international responsibilities telling us what to do. Uh, and the answer is, uh, by the time any of this actually gets made into policy, I have no doubt India will be one of the top three, five uh, global economies 10 years from now. Uh, and, and so we will be subject to this kind of, uh, of discipline. Our monetary policies will be subject to this kind of discipline. But I think it is time we started discussing. Because today, what you find in international fora is a lot of angst about the pol monetary policies that other countries are following, but never any direct confrontation, because those policies are always okay because of the domestic mandate. Nobody wants to question the domestic mandate, and of course, politically, it would be very difficult, given uh, the kind of attention central banks are subject to today, 
to, to actually alter that domestic mandate. But that is why I'm calling for a period of reflection, a period of, of uh, analysis, a period of research, so that we can improve on the global monetary system that we have so that we have policies that are more globally optimal rather than domestically optimal as we have today. Let me stop here. Thank you very much. And, of course, what you're really asking is, is uh, to shift the burden of proof to, to that you, over time, you will, when you implement these policies, you will need to explain the total set of impact. You know, in the things that, that, that. So we have time now for, for questions. Uh, please uh, introduce yourself. And, and there's a question over here. Should we, I think we should we col collect uh, three questions and, and then Hello. so please. Um, hi, thank you very much for your talk. Um, I was just a bit struck by. Can you introduce yourself. Also, I'm Jason Proben, personal capacity. Um, <laughs> I was just uh, surprised how dismissive you seem to be of helicopter money, um, especially seeing as I'm sure you saw Ben Bernanke's recent article where he was, seemed quite supportive of a version of helicopter money where the, where the central bank would help do a monetary financing of fiscal stimulus. And I'm just wondering why uh, you think that would, if you think that's a suitable option, given that it kind of would take away some of the criticisms you had of you know, people not spending. Because if the government is directly spending, then you won't get like, the, the savings counterpart. And uh, whether you think that, especially given we're probably going to enter the next recession with interest rates very near their zero lower bound, is mass unemployment really more preferable to some form of helicopter money? Actually, we have had some questions from, uh, from students writing in, and, and that's exactly one of, of the questions from, from uh, actually from the head of the Economic Society at King's College of London. Please, the lady with the headscarf. Um, first of all, oh, my name is Sana Musharraf. Um, again, someone from a developing country who had witnessed Japan and then here the UK. Um, my question for Dr. Rajan would be regarding the interaction of politics into the monetary system. Um, these are highly critical and political choices made by nations, considering when you talked about currencies and the monetary policies and the currency price wars uh, themselves. How do you intend to uh, address the issue of global currency wars um, when you say that there should be a global monetary system. Thank you. So, uh, one more question in this part, and then we will. Hi, Lorenzo Codogno. I'm visiting here at the LSE. Uh, two questions. First one, uh, the first one is really related to the spillovers. Uh, I'm familiar with the discussion uh, uh, on, uh, at the Eurozone level, and uh, we have been discussing spillovers for a number of years, actually, without uh, getting anywhere, I would say, and uh, I, I, I wonder whether it is feasible really to come up with clear answers at the international level when uh, within a, a single area with a single currency, uh, we haven't really come up with anything significant uh, after years of debate. The second question is related to the, um, the, the, the message that you sent about uh, you know, the ineffectiveness of monetary policy. 
basically what you are saying is that, uh, um, well, you know, no wonder that, uh, uh, you know, uh, policymakers keep saying that they have policy options. Uh, but that is what, uh, you know, central bankers are supposed to say because they, you know, try to, uh, you know, influence expectations. Uh, if you are saying that basically uh, uh, the effectiveness of policies are no longer as in the past, aren't you basically undermining your own policy as well? Yeah, what's wrong with uh, helicopter money? I mean, you would be very popular if you... <laughs> you know, there are a lot of people in India who, who, who do this. I mean, the local politicians and so on. They would be... <laughs> um, so, uh, first, uh, two points about helicopter money. One, uh, what I was putting out is a possibility that it may not work. People think it will work for sure. And what I was putting out is the possibility that it even helicopter money may not work. Monetary financing of the deficit may not work. And for the same reason that so much fiscal spending has not really elevated uh, growth, uh, for the same reason that you pumped reserves into the system saying banks flush with these reserves, you know, flush with money would go out and lend it. They sat on it. So I'm just throwing out the possibility that this nuclear option, which is why we still think monetary policy has teeth, and I'll come to that question a little later, may not actually be, uh, be as uh, fantastic, uh, as much of a panacea as, as is suggested. I would also ask the question, you know, uh, we're doing all this to get away from deflation. Uh, but some of the characteristics of deflation which we really worry about, uh, spiraling deflation, uh, postponement of consumption. It's not clear in the base case, that is Japan, which has experienced deflation for so, so long, that in fact any of these conditions bear out. Which leads to the question, if one is willing to, uh, what is the biggest cost of deflation? People would say leverage that's out there would, would go up significantly and that would hurt people. Well, if that's the problem, why don't we deal with that problem more directly if you have the political capital to do helicopter money, spend that political capital in reducing leverage? That is probably more likely to work than this untested uh, area. That's, that's, uh, that's one. Uh, uh, two, on global currency wars, uh, I was essentially proposing a, a structure which would limit these kinds of currency wars by essentially subjecting policies to the additional question, is this good for the globe, rather than is it just good for domestic, uh, for the domestic economy, right? So that was, that was uh, the system I was proposing, that we have a discussion about what those policies might be. I'm not saying after every policy, the globe will sort of go around the country and say, okay, did you do the right thing? But we develop a class of policies which are okay, and a class of policies which are prohibited. In that prohibited class, we have just one policy today, sustained unidirectional intervention in your exchange rate. Do more policies deserve to fall in contingent on the condition of the globe or the condition of the country? I think that's, that's worth thinking uh, about. Now, um, you know, to the point that uh, spillover effects we haven't been able to resolve, uh, I think uh, if we, if we our full attention to, to, to these kinds of problems, uh, eventually uh, some moderate, I'm not saying we'll fix it, 
but some moderate solutions will emerge. For example, much of the discussion on spillovers have been on the recipient country. You guys need to fix your policies. You guys need to you know, put in capital controls. You guys need, or not, uh, you guys need to make sure your politics uh, are uh, transparent and, uh, and uh, not, not noisy and not problematic. No word on the sending countries. Should there be something more on the sending countries? Uh, that's, a, that's worth reflecting. That's a set of policies we haven't thought about. Maybe it could have some positive effects. I don't know. Uh, I would say uh, we haven't thought about everything because this hasn't come to center stage. Essentially, spillovers are, uh, you know, uh, the recipient country's problems so far. On the, um, um, on the um, point about central banks running out of options, uh, as a central bank which has a, a different problem, I'm dealing with higher inflation. And so my problem is to bring inflation down rather than to elevate the rate of inflation. I'm in the uh, you know, um, different position today of having a different problem. As a result, I can speak, uh, at least in theoretical terms, about the problems that other central banks have. But you're absolutely right. No central bank today confronted with these problems will say we've run out of options. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the question to ask is, is that, is that really, really true? And I'm not sure we know the answer. Okay, I'll take three questions in this part, and then I'll go up to the... To the so please, in the back. Thank you. Carlo Gallo, I'm a political risk analyst. I'm not an economist, so forgive me if I come to this with a political theory and political science naivety um, perspective. But uh, it seems to me that whenever we are talking about uh, setting up certain rules of the game for finding out which policies are going to be the most beneficial based on scientific analysis, say technocratic sort of wisdom of um, experts. Uh, we are risking uh, uh, um, attaching too much confidence on this technocratic uh, ability to really understand, first of all, what are the pros and cons of any given policy, what, because any given policy, especially at this level of politicization, will have winners and losers. It's always a trade-off. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so who is to say whether those on the, uh, the losing hand of the trade-off are to be discarded and on what basis? And who is to say what kind of, uh, what kind of winning side has to prevail? And in, in historical perspective and comparative perspective, when it comes to this question from the political science or political theory point of view, it seems to me that the best answer that we have found uh, as human society has been some kind of rules of the game that ultimately, yes, benefit from a technocratic debate, the scientists, the experts pitch in, and, but ultimately it's, it's a question of, um, of, uh, of a democratic process where values and culture ultimately determine what even what every community wants to put forward as the policy, and there is no i mean this is a highly imperfect system, of course, as Churchill used to say, democracy is is highly imperfect, but you know it's, it's, the others are even worse uh, and, and, but, but I feel that uh, uh, putting up a technocratic myth as even as better than this is actually a bit of a, of a myth. Thank you please. Yeah. Giving you some exercise here. So. Uh, thank you, uh, Doctor. Um, 
You just said previously. Oh, sorry. My name is Nadim. I'm uh, previously uh, I'm an alumni of the LSE Government Department, and I wanted to know. Uh, you said in your mandate there's no compulsion to think about the rest of the world. So what is your thinking on accepting an extension to your tenure at the RBI uh, if you're invited to do so by the government? Would you like to do it or would you like to do uh, a role that allows you to uh, think more about the global monetary system? And then very quickly, secondly, do you think that there is the possibility of joint action in the case of crisis from emerging markets? And therefore, do you think they have the credibility to mount such action? We'll ask for a vote later on on, on the continuum. Yeah. So, so someone here? In the middle, they are disadvantaged. Thank you. Um, my name is Joaquin Tull. I'm an economist as well. Um, my question is, coming from, from an emerging market as well, where it's so small that we don't kind of have any power to intervene in, in the global monetary system. Which one? Uruguay. Uruguay. Um, it's really good to hear Dr. Rajan speaking about monetary coordination um, uh, globally, just because this also uh, affects uh, smaller emerging markets that usually don't have the possibility to affect this, this way. My question is, how can um, we generate that when India itself has a neighbor like China that one day wakes up and devalues the RMB uh, unilaterally and then affects the rest of emerging market currencies or the global um, monetary coordination that everyone was trying to achieve at then. Uh, does the G20 conference in February kind of try to control that and try to uh, weaken the, the, the dollar is part of those joint efforts or is China will continue to we're trying to continue to have a, a unilateral um, policy on this. Thank you. Yeah. Does China care about spillbacks or spillovers? <laughs> um, okay. Um, on, on the three questions, the uh, technocratic solution. You know, um, uh, the WTO and its, uh, its rules uh, uh, got largely done with, uh, without democratic um, so direct democratic, of course, leaders were involved and so on. Uh, and, and my sense is that, you know, something like free trade is, is harder to explain uh, more broadly. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, obviously politicians have to be, have to be involved. And uh, uh, there, are, there is give and take. There is uh, political involvement. Um, I would say that if, uh, if free trade is hard to explain, the, what the central bank does is even harder to explain more broadly. And uh, therefore, um, the discussion could become quite arcane quite quickly. Um, the, um, that is not to say there shouldn't be no democratic involvement. Uh, but I would say that we first need to understand well enough to explain uh, to the broader uh, uh, population as well as, as political uh, leaders uh, what in fact we're worried about and what we're trying to do. So at this point I'm not uh, even suggesting we need know what the framework would be, but I would say we need more research, more analysis, more discussion. Uh, essentially I would um, uh, say that with the aim that international responsibility needs to be better defined, uh, let, us, let us work on what that, that research should be. Um, in, on the issue of joint action in case of crisis, 
I think already you see a number of emerging markets intervening to help their neighbors uh, and, uh, and providing liquidity facilities to their neighbors. Um, we, for example, have a SARC facility as well as we have created separate facilities for some of our neighbors. And so uh, I, I would say, yes, that in the absence uh, of the right kind of instruments at the global level, uh, people are working with each other, with regional arrangements and so on, and, uh, and we need to figure out how to make this more part of the global structure. Um, the uh, third point, uh, uh, gentleman from Uruguay, uh, you know, I, I, I want to back away from the word coordination or cooperation because that seems to suggest that, uh, you know, somebody from the industrial country central bank will call around all the emerging markets and say, what should I do? Yeah. And, and, and that certainly is not what's on the, uh, what, what I think is, is reasonable. Uh, what I think is reasonable is a set of, uh, of uh, uh, green zones and, uh, and red zones where I know clearly what, uh, what the global community uh, believes is uh, is is okay, and what is what what is clearly not okay. In the same way as sustained unilateral intervention has been banned by the global community, and uh, what uh, what falls in the orange zone, I think much more explanation is required as to why this is necessary, why it is important. Now, in fact, this is already you know in the background, in the back corridors, already being done. I am doing this policy because of this 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 reason. But there is no explicit sort of structure or framework for this uh, to happen. And all I'm calling for is a more open discussion based on evidence, based on analysis, based on models uh, for us to have this discussion uh, and, and actually take it to its legitimate con conclusion. Okay. I promised someone has been holding his hand up since before you started talking. So, so, so <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. Dr. Rajan, uh, thank you. Very inspiring. Um, my name is Miswin, Miswin Mahesh. I look at the oil markets for, for Barclays, and we speak to a lot of central bankers. And one of the things that I've noticed is sometimes they're not looking at the emerging metrics. I, they're looking at the traditional metrics, but if you speak to central bankers here, they're all looking at, for, for instance, oil. They look at the forward curve. The forward curve for oil set, tells oil's at $60 a barrel in 2020. But we all know the market's tightening. It could be 85 uh, When we look at employment statistics, you know, Yellen's looking at uh, the non-farm payroll numbers. Is anybody actually looking at, you know, how, much, uh, how many Uber drivers are earning in the, in the gray economy, for instance? So my question is this. Is... Uh, is the Reserve Bank of India looking at the right metrics for India um, in terms of the statistics? And the other thing is, in terms of oil as well, we are headed to, I mean, I look at the oil markets, so, I mean, we are headed to a period where market, the oil markets are going to be ultra-volatile, not like we've seen in the previous two decades. We might see $65 a barrel in one quarter, might see $40 a barrel in the other quarter, and how can, you know, existing monetary policy tools be adjusted to to meet the, the ramifications on inflation. And again, as you mentioned in your, in your speech, um, you know, we're going towards a world where there's a lot of automation, et cetera. Wage inflation might not be as high as we've seen historically. So yeah, looking at all of these factors, are central bankers looking at the right metric? That's my question to you, Dr. Rajan. It's Thank you. It's clear. The woman there. My name is Trishta Vardhan. I'm a, a student of sustainable architecture. 
my question is for the upliftment of emerging economies like india in which field can private players actually have a significant impact sorry did you get that question no i i love what was the last part uh, for for the upliftment of emerging economies like india in which field can private players actually have a significant impact mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the gentleman in front here in the front there. Thank you, Antonio Foglia, banker, uh, if I may say so. Uh, <laughs> you discussed a lot of the need for actually suppressing volatility, and there is a lot of concern by the authority to try to see where volatility might come from and try to suppress it. And I can understand this sort of bias from professor in finance, uh, confusing volatility with risk. Shouldn't we actually be ready to accept a higher level of volatility, because that is the only way that we can make the whole system less risky by stop pushing uh, risk in the tails. Okay. You. Um, question one, are we working on the right metrics? Well, we won't know, right, until... Uh, 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 but, but, you know, a more serious answer is, is that obviously we, uh, there are some pieces of data which we probably should be looking at, which we, we aren't. Uh, we do try and modify the kinds of data that we, uh, we, we, we look at. Um, I would also argue, though, that one can look at every small piece of data and still miss the big picture. Mm. And, and, and certainly, uh, you know, there have been central bankers who have been known for following every, every tiny piece of data, uh, but, but somehow the big development during that time uh, was was uh, was less front and center. Um, so I, I would say you need a mix of both. What's the big picture? What are the big forces? And uh, what's happening uh, in productivity in uh, in the aluminum industry? And what's happening to uh, you know startups in uh, in the peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending? Um, on private players in India having an impact? Yes, they have tremendous impact. Uh, uh, I think the NGO movement in India is huge, uh, uh, privately led, uh, and, uh, and has uh, had a tremendous impact. If you're talking about private players from outside, yes, there's a, uh, this year we are experiencing our, our largest FDI, uh, uh, I think, ever. Uh, I, I'm talking about the year that just ended, fiscal year. And uh, so I, I think People are uh, playing a big uh, role. The private sector, private banking sector is expanding significantly faster than the public sector, banking sector. So lots of space for uh, private enterprises in India. Uh, I, I wasn't talking about suppressing volatility. I, I was instead saying let us not undertake uh, um, you know, policies that have the effect of storing potential large volatility moves. Uh, in other words, if uh, um, I want to move asset prices with the idea that this is going to make people happy, I have to also think about what happens at the end, whether it's exchange rates, whether it's uh, uh, bonds, whether it's something else. At the end of my move, am I going to have reached a world where those asset prices are justified? Or am I going to reach a place where those now are wildly out of kilter with fundamentals, in which case that adjustment has to take place? That's the stored volatility I was talking about. And the problem we've seen again and again is large asset price movements typically 
interact with leverage because somebody has borrowed to take those positions and create problems for the system. So we, we should be very wary about storing up large asset price movements. Okay, we're coming towards the end here. I was wanted to give uh, uh, Professor Mukulika Banerjee, uh, who is the director of the uh, South Asia Center and professor in anthropology, the chance to say a few words of thanks. Thank you, Eric, and thank you for bringing uh, Raghuram Rajan uh, to LSE. Old friendships are, are helpful uh, sometimes. Thank you all for having um, made this rather wet 100-foot journey uh, today. Um, it's a testimony to our speaker that uh, in the middle of an exam period, I don't know whether you know this, Raghu, but students are at exams, um, and people have obviously taken time off work to be here. So we couldn't have asked for a more auspicious and more celebrated start uh, to this uh, 100-foot journey club that His Excellency talked about at the start. Now, I don't know how many of you know that when Raghuram Rajan was appointed as governor of the Reserve Bank of India, the news created a stir in a way not dissimilar to the announcement of a new head of state or indeed a new Bollywood blockbuster. It, was, uh, it created a disproportionate level of excitement uh, given this was you know, the 23rd governor of, of the Reserve Bank of India being announced. And in a sense, today's um, lecture goes some way to explain why. Um, as a social anthropologist myself, I'm feeling very triumphant that I understood most of what <laughs> an economist said. Uh, which is not to say much about anthropologists, but much more to say about economists and their ability to communicate about an economy in which we all spend money and pay taxes and, and, and have bank accounts, uh, but is made incomprehensible the moment it is uh, spoken about by the specialists. Uh, but more importantly, and if you know, the Indian High Commission is really about India's place on the global stage, the LSE is about you know, fundamentally, institutionally, our DNA is about making academic research socially useful. And I think these two things come together in, in what we've heard in an exemplary fashion. What I've taken away is um, really a, a call for more research, more analysis, and very importantly, more a sense of responsibility. And I think Raghuram Rajan has uh, very clearly showed us his uh, impeccable credentials for providing that kind of global leadership coming from hitherto unexpected quarters from an emerging economy, but one can think about the world in fundamentally different ways and to make us think about economics and finance and uh, the global system in radically different ways. So I hope you'll all join me in collectively thanking our speaker.